Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod, joined here by Bridget Quinn, author, as I won't say always because I was recently joined by not Lorianne Doyle a couple weeks ago, but yep. you're back. Hooray. Today, uh, we will be joined by author Fenton Johnson. Uh, I'm getting reaching down to get my notes here. That was very suave. It was very professional, right? I did that. I wish sometimes we could take video of the grotto pod so people <laughs> could see just how it works in here. Because I think we're kidding, and we're so not kidding. Uh, you know what's funny about that is, as soon as you said you were in the grotto pod, you know what the first thought that went to my mind is? What? It's, it has an expletive. The like that. Shit! I left my sweater on. <laughs> Yeah, you got and and me. I'm like, oh, this shirt's going to show sweat, which is terrible. It makes me think of a couple times when guests, usually men, have sweated profusely, oh, and I felt whoa, bad. There's been some sweaters. I was just talking to Todd yesterday, who was in here, and he said, "Boy, when I was in there, I was dying." I'm like, "Yes," and you were wearing linen. I know. I felt. I mean, that was a good idea because it's cool. Well, sure, linen's sort of a go-to. Very natty. For, uh, he always looks very natty. I know it's he true. He's a habitual wearer of yesterday cargo shorts and no socks. That's true. Yesterday he was making lunch. It looked so yummy, always. and I said to our guest, "Sometimes she goes, oh, it's so nice that you get to have lunch all together like this.'" I'm like, "Yes, but then you have to uh, lunch jealousy." Yeah, there is a little bit of lunch. lunch every single day. There's a little bit of lunch wars going Todd on. Todd Oppenheimer, by the way, in case Todd people don't know who the hell we're talking about, uh, publisher of Craftsmanship Quarterly. Yes. Craftsmanship.org. But today our guest is Fenton Johnson, who hopefully will be able to deal with the heat. Uh, if you it's go to than usual. Wikipedia page, he's wearing a muscle tee. So oh, I hope he wears that. Maybe I like he'll wear that. Um, Fenton, you know, uh, I think uh, producer Lee Kravitz earlier in a discussion described Fenton Johnson as a writer's writer. Yeah, and I think that's fairly accurate. He's the kind of guy who has he, he's versatile. Oh my gosh, yes, he's published novels, he, memoir. Has published Articles. three novels: Crossing the River, nineteen ninety one, Scissors Paper Rock, nineteen ninety four. Both reissued in two thousand sixteen. How cool is that? The Man Who Loved Birds, uh, right. also published in two thousand sixteen. And they reissued his back novels when they published that. And That's pretty awesome. What a cool thing! Couple of uh, memoir type deals: uh, uh, Geography of the Heart, nineteen ninety six. That made very quite famous. a splash, yeah, right? Yeah, very yeah. famous book. Uh, and I guess would you call uh, Keeping Faith a Skeptic's Journey? That's more of a novel. And then Everywhere at Home, A Life in Essays. Place, home, these are big issues. Belonging. Yeah, they're really big issues. And also, uh, um, uh, I don't know, is it too obvious to say solitude? I was going to say solitude yeah. because I know he's working on a book that is right. not yet complete that was spurred by a really long article he and wrote for Harper's. Big deal. A big deal. Called... Uh, um, uh, going it alone. Going it alone. Yeah. Uh, is he, and it's not just solitude. He's talking about he's calling people who crave solitude solitaries. You know, I think I might be one of those people. I am not one of those people, but I can take it. I, I, sometimes, so I just yes, spent no. two weeks completely by myself. Solitary. Even at night, just didn't go down to have oh. dinner or something? Nope. Spent it completely alone, I, except for my dogs. I really Ooh, felt fantastic. I came back to the city and I've kind of been like Hong not Kong. doing well. Hey! Yeah. It's not even all that. It's just all of the, I love everyone in my life. I have such amazing people in my life, but mm-hmm. I feel like overwhelmed by the connections. Well, sometimes. we can we can talk about this with Finn because I have a feeling he has spent more time thinking about this than we have. Yeah, because he's also kind of a contemplative. He is very much a contemplative. <laughs> Maybe not kind of, yeah. He is a man who has been a, been a member of a Trappist Abbey. Mm-hmm. In his hometown of New Haven, Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> Thought I was going well, the John, other way yeah. there. Uh, and a member of the San Francisco Zen 
center. A lot of stuff about. I mean, really, like faith. I know Zen and Trappist monks. That's about as solitude. About as, you want to hear some awards? Uh huh. He was a Stegner Fellow. That's he was a deal. Missioner Fellow. Also big. He has an NEA Fellowship. Lordy. He was a what's there? A, yeah, a Guggenheim Fellow. Kentucky Literary Award, two Lambda Literary Awards, American Library Association Stonewall Book Award. Oh my gosh! Uh, and you know what? He's uh, he's written a couple documentaries. Oh, I didn't know that. Stranger with a Camera. Oh, you're like the Google King. And I just I wanted he just wrote it. I don't know. If, you what know, do this you is write the thing. a documentary. Well, this saying? is a thing. I don't know his involvement in these. It said written okay. by, but one of them's about Anita Bryant. Oh my God! What? I, I want to talk to him about that. Does anyone uh, even know who Anita Bryant is anymore? I wonder do you guys if they know do. It was such Anita a big Bryant deal is. all those oh, years ago the with the oranges and the, the, oh, the gosh, homophobia. Terrible person. Ugh. Uh, and my uh, my um, my connection to Fenton Johnson is I took a class from him at San Francisco State. That's right. I got 27 years ago. Well, was, didn't you tell me 1991? 1991. It's 27 years ago because today is my 27th wedding anniversary. That's right. And I got married in 1991. That's uh, the only time math I'm going to have at that. That's the only kind of math you got? At, Sassy. <laughs> That's my specialty. So we are just awaiting Fenton Johnson's arrival, arrival. Johnson's arrival. Yeah. Uh, we are not sweating yet. No, I'm going to take my sweater off, though. Okay. And um, I don't mind taking my sweater off in front of you. I don't like the back in front of guests. I don't know because it looks a little odd to just suddenly take a shirt off. It's a little overly familiar, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. I we have like, a shirt on under it. I'm not saying I don't. We like to keep a very po- a professional Correct. attitude here. <laughs> I hope we didn't mispronounce his name. Maybe it's Johnson. <laughs> you know, his, Larry and I, I don't have a great track record. <laughs> oh God, how did I mispronounce R- Raffle? <laughs> Even before you said, "Well, it's not Raffle," I'm like, it "Okay, can't yeah, possibly it can't. be Raffle." Poor uh, yesterday's, well, last week's yeah. uh, guest, Don Raffle, is going to listen Sorry, Don. and say, "Oh my God, are they making fun of my name?" No, no. Don, no, us. No. We're making fun of us. We are making fun of we're us. We're bad, terrible. We will never be that Jesuit. I say that every episode. I said it when Lori was here, and you know she what's... just blew it off. Oh. Yeah. You know what's scary, though? What? Is that Fenton has been introduced, uh, introduced has been interviewed by Terry Gross. Wow. So that's a little scary. And We're going to dial up the NPR. Him. Yeah. Yeah. I can do it. You have the voice for it. Right. I can do it. I don't know if I have the personality for it. I'm going to clear my throat. With, I don't have a button to, like, do that, so I just did it. Secret grotto hijinks right now. Let me reveal it to you, grotto pod listeners. Remember, uh, yesterday I came to you and I had a golf tee in my hand. Oh. I had a bunch of golf tees in my bag from when I played golf. Yeah. I thought, you know what I'm going to do with these golf tees? Yeah. I'm going to put it in the middle of the table, of the uh, lunch table. Oh, and see if it's still there? Yeah. Was so it? I haven't checked today, but that's a little little inside glimpse. That's how the sausage is made here or, or <laughs> I'm gonna bet you not unmade here at the grotto. A million dollars it's still, it's still there. there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to put another one there today. I'm just going <laughs> to keep, keep putting it. Yeah. <laughs> because I've noticed, like, for example, should you leave a giant shaker of, like, Morton's salt? Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere on the table, it will still be there many days later. Yeah, I'm going to try that. Um, but okay. the golf tee, I'm going to wait and see. I, I will report back. Now that we've got that out of our systems, we're ready to do an NPR-style interview with yes. writer's writer, yeah. Fenton Johnson. Can't wait. Fenton Johnson, welcome to the Grotto Pod. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. Uh, you rode in on a bike. No, I did not. <laughs> oh, whose bike helmet was that I saw? The 14R was what got me here. Well, it's, it's good to know. So I, there's a ton of stuff to talk about. but I, So much. 
I'm really interested in your take on place and home and belonging. So in a roundabout sort of way, I wanted to ask, do you still spend time in San Francisco? Yeah, I uh, am on the faculty at the University of Arizona. I live in Tucson when I'm teaching there. Part of the terms of the deal of the job when I took it was that they would give me a leave of absence but continue my benefits uh, pretty much whenever I wanted it. Not bad. Uh, I share a place on Vernal Heights with um, two other people, and I come back here you know, pretty much whenever I'm not in Tucson. I, I've been here, for example, this whole summer. Mm-hmm. I have a residency in the south of France, which I'm about to take off mm, nice. for a couple of months, but I'll come back and then I resume teaching in Tucson in January. How is that? How is Tucson? Uh, sounds hot. It's dusty, sprawling, scrappy, enchanting Tucson. And oh, I say that to people like when that. they get off at the airport. You don't get the enchanting without the dusty, sprawling, scrappy. You kind of have I to get into that, that, um, that desert frame of mind, though, right? Yeah, there's that. I mean, it's a city with a long history, a very good MFA program at mm-hmm. the university, and a long Absolutely. history of writers ranging from Ed Abbey to the poet. AI, I never can remember mm-hmm. how to pronounce her name, To Did David Foster Wallace go there? Or David teach Foster there? Wallace graduated from there. Barbara Kingsolver was there for years. I'm a good old friend with Barbara, and part of the reason that I moved there is that she was still living in Tucson at the time. And, uh, her essay collection, High Tide in Tucson, was one of the first things I read where it was essays that were about herself and place and big topics. Uh, it seemed really new when I read it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm still tripping over the Arizona part. My parents lived in Arizona. Uh-huh. Not a fan, but that's good. I'm not a desert <laughs> Which guy. Which part of Arizona? They live in the Phoenix area. Well, you know what people Is in Tucson uh, that different uh, elsewhere don't understand. And what I finally realized, you know, all western towns in the east you get a population sign. In the west you get an elevation sign. Mm, and I realized that <laughs> because <clears throat> every place Elevation determines everything in Arizona, um, and Phoenix is at a thousand feet, so it's blisteringly hot in the mm-hmm. summers. It's also in arguably one of the least geographically interesting part of the state, but it's it's big. There's a lot of space, so it can sprawl. When you go up in elevation, two thirds of Arizona has the same weather as Colorado. It's right. um, cold in the winter. Uh, and Tucson, then the state rises again as you go to the south. So Tucson is cooler than Phoenix. It gets more rain than Phoenix. So it's very much about – I don't like to say these things because um, Arizona is now what Orange County was in 1960. Well, I used to say it was a California tease. That's right. Um, Phoenix is east, east Los Angeles. Yeah. But somewhere between Phoenix and Tucson – actually not somewhere in between, at the Gila River, you cross from Southern California into the interior west. And it's a completely different world and environment. Well, when you said, uh, was it a dusty, scrappy, sprawling, reminds me a little bit of where I grew up on the high plains of Montana. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's a little bit like where you grew up in Kentucky. No, mm, I don't. (laughs) I imagine that is lush. But I'm, I'm not saying I'm not green. saying topographically. I'm saying like scrappy, uh, uh, enchanting in its way. Mm. I don't know. I'm not putting words no, in your mouth. I'm just no, wondering. No, there's uh, 
Kentucky is the mm, it's the ultimate quintessential border state, and it's neither south nor north. My great grandfather was a Union soldier in the Civil War, um, but um, uh, it is very lush and green, and uh, wherever the coal companies have not destroyed it, mm-hmm. uh, quite beautiful, uh, or the developers. Uh, I couldn't. Part of the charm is being in two places that are so radically different from each other. Everything is new in Arizona. Um, Even the politicians are new. Most of the politicians arrived from elsewhere. John McCain, to speak of someone who is in the news right now, um, lived for maybe a total of four months in Arizona. Um, and uh, per, per year or total? Ever. Um, he was wow. running for office in Florida. The Republican National Committee came to him and said, we have too many candidates in Florida. We, um, But we've got a safe seat in Arizona. Your wife is in an, uh, from a wealthy Arizona family. Move there. You'll be mm-hmm. back. You'll be in Washington in six months. Well, isn't interesting? I feel like the West, Arizona, and the West in general, it's a state of mind as well. It's a, it's a, this idea of reinvention that you can be whatever you want to be out here. Yes, and I would say that the, if you're going to compare Kentucky and Arizona, the one thing that they have in common is um, that they are both states of mind in a way. People are intensely conscious of the place as a place. But you know where I would, and I, in fact, in the most recent collection of essays, I draw this comparison um, between San Francisco and Kentucky, oddly enough, Hmm, because I have the, I don't know if it's a misfortune or the accident, of being intimately familiar with two places whose residents share this quality. Mm -hmm. They believe that where they live is the most perfect place on the planet. And they will tell you that Uh and they will not be happy if you say, well, actually, there are a lot of wonderful places on the planet. Correct. People from rural Kentucky, you will say, why did you leave? Why why would you ever – don't we live in paradise? That part surprises me. I know um, that about San Francisco. And the worst crime you can commit is to leave. um, So given that, (laughs) given given that you are – I was going to say – I was going to ask you where you're from, but I don't know where you're from is the accurate question I'm, I'm looking for. I think where are you a citizen of? San Francisco, Arizona, Kentucky, everywhere home. A life in essays. Say uh, more. That's the last uh, – that's the reason for the title of the book is that uh, – <clears throat> is that I – at one point in my life, I thought I was particularly identified with a place. But then, uh, I, you know, in a sort of uh, – ahead of the wave in the way that I have been in so many ways in my life, not necessarily happily so, I lost an apartment in San Francisco. Mm. It was 1996. Um, I had always wanted to live in New York. I It was, at a time, very difficult to find a place to live in San Francisco. Now, it seems like it was a piece of cake compared to, you know, yes. today. But I thought, if I get 35 seconds older, I'm never going to move to New York, and I'll move to New York. So then I lived in New York for three years, and then I got the job in Arizona, and um, I've spent a lot of time in France, and um, every place that I have been, I have fallen in love with in some way or another. I fell in love with Calcutta, and I I was there for a month in a very... 
you know, odd but, way. But, but having fallen yeah. in love with all these places, then why do you continue looking for new places? Um, I'm not looking for new places <laughs> anymore. Okay. I am. Uh, I am. Uh, I am. Uh, uh, I'm happy to be going back to France, but uh, I'm happy for the old familiar places at this point. Do you still love Kentucky? Oh, sure, of course. That's beautiful. Uh, I feel it is the first line of your biography. You know that you're the ninth of nine. Yeah. What ninth of nine children from of bourbon. family that made bourbon. Yeah. I, want, I want to just say something quickly about that. You're, I'm also one of nine. Oh, yeah? And that doesn't happen very often. You're our first Grotto podcast, <laughs> uh, who is also one of nine. Where are um, you in the process? I'm eighth. Uh, that, You're that, nine, that, right? Boy, that, that says, and who is the youngest child, a boy or a girl? Boy. That's a hard place to be. It was you know, hard. You know, the, the, oh, I love you, Ben. You become a little prince or an afterthought? Uh, well, he was the prince. There is a reason why... In mythology, I mean, just go back and look at mythology. The you, youngest son is uh, Joseph is the classic example, sold into slavery by his brothers, you know, who succeeds and then comes home and forgives them. And, you know. I'll tell you what's shocking is how many women artists are the eighth child. Uh-huh, it's amazing, actually. Uh-huh. Women, women artists, I said that, yeah, are the eighth child. Um, when you talk about birth order that way and you being the ninth son... The ninth child. Ninth child, okay. Say more. Ninth son. Ninth son. The ninth (laughs) child and a son. Uh, (laughs) Although, yeah, in my family, that would be close. uh, There are, there were five girls and four boys. I say, I think accurately, that the only time my brothers cheered my arrival, actually by that point, one of the daughters had died. She died in infancy. Mm -hmm. So at that, at the time of my birth, there were three boys and four girls. And the only time Mm -hmm. my brothers cheered my arrival and cheered anything about me in the world was the day that I was born because I evened up right. the, uh, the score, see that. score, so to speak. How, what's the um, age gap between you and the oldest? The oldest child is uh, uh, 16 years older than I. Yeah, okay. same. Mm-hmm. So that was steady work. Uh, yes, she, you know, it was... Uh, you know, it was a small Catholic town in uh, in the hills uh, by an accident of um, settlement that... Um, uh, we don't think of Catholics as living in the rural South, and right. by and large they don't, but there were Catholics who, for one reason or another, a lot of them, um, Scots who fled right. uh, uh, Scotland after the Battle of Culloden and and the loss of the Catholic Party in England and the prejudice, the, the laws against Catholicism, came via Ireland in many cases to the United States, and they being rural people, settled in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how the <coughs> intense Catholic population <coughs> came about in, you know, unexpectedly in this place that's 50, 60 miles south of Louisville and best known for and quite well known for um, Thomas Merton being uh, right. writing at the monastery, right. which was a few miles from my uh, parents' house. How much, you know, we've, we've sort of that's touched amazing. on the idea of, I, I tell me if this is inaccurate, but the idea that a lot of your life has been a search for place or an exploration of place, exploration of home. There's your book, Everywhere Home. Um, talk a little bit about being a small-town Catholic, a rural Catholic, and the influence of the Abbey, Abbey, of the, um, yeah, the Abbey, mm-hmm. on your development as a thinker. Not as a writer necessarily, but as a thinker. Well, the only... Uh Real civilization that came into my town of <clears throat> then about 800 today, about 500 people, 
um, <clears throat> as I say, about um, 60 miles south of Louisville, although at that point the roads were bad. And to get to Louisville was a once-a-year expedition. I was that wondering took about two that. two hours, you know, to drive. I least. mapped it last night. Uh, today you can get to downtown Louisville in an hour. In an hour. Yeah. But in those days, and also it was just the country thing. We were country people. <clears throat> the monks were um, educated. Uh, they were from exotic places like Detroit and New Jersey and uh, Cleveland. And uh, they brought uh, – my, my, my there was an alcoholic monk named um, Brother Fenton who uh, <laughs> wa- was trying to figure out a way to get um, whiskey into the monastery. And he devised a uh, fruitcake recipe that has a lot of bourbon in it. And my father became – <clears throat> the conduit for the bourbon from this, um, what we would today call a, a small craft distillery um, before its time, but that's what he was doing. He became, my father became the conduit for that bourbon um, to the monastery, and he always managed to lose a case along the way, and the monks liked him, especially Brother Fenton liked him for that. And I ended up getting named after Fenton because of... Um, because of uh, Fenton was the baker, and he would make me these <clears throat> enormous, elaborate birthday cakes. And were the monks cloistered up there in the abbey, or were they walking around town? What was their impact on this small town? Well, in those days, I mean, the really relevant thing on my development as a thinker was that this was really a, a, a medieval environment. It mm. was... Um, you know, except for tractors, which had only at the monastery only arrived ten years earlier, um, they used draft horses until then. You know, our lives were ruled by bells. We said the prayers at the six noon and Old six, town? six p.m. Yeah, absolutely, it's incredible um, how much your childhood was like. My, my childhood. We we did. Uh, you know, we <clears throat> we did the sort of thing that people now, you know, pay a lot of money to travel to Peru and watch people do and say how quaint and charming this is. We would dress up and pray the Virgin through the streets and, and uh, uh, the women would make these elaborate, uh, 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 what do you call them, carrying uh, platforms for uh, the Virgin, which they would de- decorate with flowers and... Well, so maybe then this is a question for the two of you as the only Jew in the room, but <laughs> what's, what's the weight of that on a child? You go first. Uh, well, I mean, the weight is huge in many ways and as a woman, right? Like it's an extremely patriarchal um, society and can be very crushing to a young girl's spirit in that way. On the other hand, I feel like I had even – very often, I went to grad school in New York, worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. People would say to me, oh, you're from rural Montana. You're self-invented. But my interest in art and my understanding of art came from immediate experience of this kind of medieval world that I grew up in. And I feel like I grew up the same way. We you know, prayed novenas. We uh, you know, went to mass, of course, every Sunday, but often many other days of the week celebrated. You know, We celebrated not just my birthday, but my saint's day. Um, I'm one of nine, but I grew up with families who were had 11 kids, 12 kids, right. not uncommon. Right. Um, so I think, uh, it's a, I think it's more of a mixed bag than people would expect, I guess I would say. So not as oppressive as we outsiders might think. There's definitely oppressive parts, but uh, 
the Catholic Church is not the only patriarchal game in town. <laughs> it's just kind of more obvious. I also grew up with a lot of radical nuns who were amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't. <clears throat> the Sisters of Loretto, who are kind of the original radical nuns, also had their mother house about 10 miles away. And two of my aunts, an aunt and a great aunt, were sisters in the Sisters of Loretto. Um, there was that influence. As I say, the monks brought the outside world. <clears throat> we were always delighted. I was always delighted when they came because they brought the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, in Tucson, there is a um, – the Yaqui Indians hold a very elaborate – Ceremony, and I won't describe it in detail, except it's pr- pretty amazing. It's pretty—it's the most remarkable thing outside of Durga Puja in Calcutta that I experience, and it's held every Easter. It actually—they—it's uh, across the whole of Lent, but the big culminating day is Saturday before Easter, and it's an elaborate mythology of mix of pre-Columbian myth and Jesuit stories and whatever. And um, Jesus has been captured by the bad guys and uh, then recaptured by the good guys. This is across the course of Lent. And the good guys are hiding Jesus inside uh, a, uh, a building. Uh, and uh, the bad guys on this particular Saturday before Easter have these elaborate masks that they make and wear throughout Lent, beautiful masks. And they put on the masks and they charge the, the, the building where Jesus is three times. And the way Jesus is protected is the women rush out with the five-year-old girls in their communion outfits. And they hold the girls wow. up to the men who are charging at them. And there are mm-hmm. firecrackers going off and you, you weaken the bad guys by throwing flowers at them. And when they're hit with flowers, they're weakened. And I, the first time I saw that, I go every Easter that I'm in. If I I'm love in it. Tucson, if I'm, I'm, if I'm there, I go. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought these children are marked for life. That, that this is a way of binding this child to the community because you're never going to whatever you do for the rest of your life, you are marked by that experience. And I would say that you know that was the goal That's, of yeah. my. That was what happened. You were marked by the experience. Regardless of how much, I know, I I think I either heard you on a podcast or read something you had written about your journey with faith and how. Well, I write a lot about religion and spirituality, and that's obviously the influence of the. But there had been a time when you tried to put it behind you, as as a lot of people will do. Sure, of course. I mean, I was a gay man, and I was was so furious at the church. I was so angry at the church. And the reason I wrote that particular book is that I had (laughs) been in enough therapy to realize that if I – first of all, that the anger was a source of great great potential – was a it was a charged battery, and secondly, if I didn't process it in some way or another, I, it was always going to rule my life, mm-hmm. and I didn't want it to rule my life. And I was able. I mean, for example, um, theater came to my hometown in the form of the elaborate ceremonies of right. the Catholic Church mm. uh, and art. Whatever you thought about the art, the church at that time, they had hired Italians and painted these elaborate frescoes of mythological creatures and figures that are all, you know, features of church mythology, but it imbued my sensibility with an appreciation for mythology and for storytelling and a kind of um, healthy disdain for empiricism that uh, I carry with me. On the other hand, 
my mother was a Protestant convert, and so she brought, uh, she said to me once, which I doubt that any other mother in my hometown said to their children, when I came home and asked her something about our going to hell because we had missed church on Sunday, she said, um, you don't really have to believe everything they tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think that's not a small thing. It's not. I still remember it. Yeah. It's fantastic. And was your mother a librarian? Did I remember? She brought civilization to the town. She decided that there had to be a library. So the monks gave her, the Trappists gave her uh, about five or 600 books out of their library that they weren't using anymore. And um, the local men's club bought a abandoned gas station and she set up a library on her own. <clears throat> just to, you know, did it under her own initiative in this abandoned gas station. And then oh God, two it. years later, the county passed a library tax and started a library, a library of its own and with a branch in my little town. And she was hired as that librarian. And today the town has a building that any town in America would be proud to have. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think about the transition from the abandoned gas station to this fabulous building that so has fantastic. Wi-Fi and it's a gorgeous building. And it, and it says something. I, I like to tell that story because there is something about both patience. It took 50 years for mm-hmm. that transition to happen. But also uh, community engagement in a way that we don't seem to be much invested in these I days. I agree that we don't seem so, invested in that. Well, it seems like, you know, this – when you hear – that a writer, an urbane writer, has roots in a small town in Kentucky. I don't think this is the story you expect. You know, you expect tales of rednecks and deliverance. And it doesn't sound like that's what we're getting here. Is it just a unique town? Is it a unique way of processing that you had as a child to see these possibilities and, and to be able to you know, look at the the abbey and go, wow, look at all that art and all that ritual that I like. Not, oh, there's, you know, there's boring old church. <laughs> and are these the things that made it possible for you to eventually be a world traveler? Well, uh, uh, every – one thing that people who grow up in big cities I think often don't realize, every small town is unique. They are all – they all have interesting oh, histories. I'm with you. Um, Having said that, uh, my mother, both of my parents were what we would call artistic. They were it very, sounds like it, yeah. They were, my mother was a, loved, both of my parents loved beauty. And the ceremonies of the church and uh, especially at the monastery were my introduction to beauty. Uh, Bridget, I wonder if you would say the same thing. I mean, that my, my perception and conception of beauty, which is, of course, I think for any artist ranging from, you know, somebody who is from Jean Genet to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whomever to Jane Hirschfield, you know, is uh, – has a particular conception of beauty and that is shaped – I ask that question of my students sometime. Where did you learn? What, what, mean, what does beauty mean to you and how did you come by – that idea, and certainly in my case, it was the the primary. There were two places that were the primary sources of beauty. One was the landscape, mm-hmm. which even then, even mm-hmm. never having been outside of rural Kentucky, I didn't 
set foot in a restaurant until I was 17 years old. I didn't know. I arrived in San Francisco not knowing how to take a bus, not knowing how to use a paid telephone, not, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> to bathe in the woods. <laughs> but I nonetheless knew that I lived in a beautiful landscape. Mm-hmm. And the other was uh, the church. Now, having said that, there was plenty of the, – the racism that I grew up was a lifelong wound. And I, I, I don't like to think about the fact that my father, who was in so many ways a really great man, would these days – I watched Spike Lee's documentary about the four girls in Birmingham mm-hmm. – and they, he shows the killer toward the end. My father would never have committed that act of violence, but he would not I, – I, I cannot say with any confidence that he would have disapproved of what that man did at that particular moment in history. And that is a really terrible thing to remember. It's a tough thing to carry with you uh, and then balance out all the good in him. Yeah, it's uh, well. You know, he was a man of his time. He mm-hmm. was a man of the wilderness. Really, he was born in 1910. But because of, I mean, this is I don't, you can Bridget describe your history, but in my case, I am the youngest child of the oldest child of the youngest child of the oldest child. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that the personal history that was put upon me goes way, right. way, way back. I mean, people. I will say to people that my great-grandfather was a Union soldier, and I've had people say, no, you mean great-great-grandfather? And I said, no, great. my well, great-grandfather. I have the same exact experience because my father fought in World War II. Wow. Um, very unusual for someone my age. But I often say I was raised in the 40s and the 70s yeah. um, because I grew up in a place out of time in a lot of ways, but it sounds like so did you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the weight of history is um, doing a lot of research on Civil War history until about 1920 right now. And to just realize how much of that exists in our daily life every single day right now that we're unconscious of um, is incredibly eye-opening. Yes, absolutely. The Civil War is – well, you can't understand. I, I just was having a conversation with a French friend who was asking about American politics. And I said, well, you can't understand American politics without understanding that the whole system is shaped by and based in slavery. And we live under – our political system is organized because of slavery. That's what happened. It's incredible mm. to go back and see step by step how it happened is like mind-boggling. And, and we yeah. have not changed that. Yeah. I mean the reason why there are two senators, the reason why there's an electoral mm. college is because the slave states right. knew that they were going – they were already outnumbered. They knew that in any democracy they were going to they were going to lose out in any real democracy, and they demanded, as the price of the ticket of their participation, that there be a system created that gave them disproportionate power in Washington. Uh, as the weird Jewish immigrant kid in the room, I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it wasn't so good for the Jews either. Just FYI, no, we weren't we were <laughs> here yet. It wasn't great for us. If you were bad, actually, you were here. But, yeah, and in the but, South, it's the actually German Jews were. Yeah, the, the it's, it's pretty interesting because um, specifically, I'm I'm researching women's voting rights, and what's incredible is um, one of the biggest. Um, I don't know, like the feminist firebrand in Nashville, Tennessee was a Jewish girl. Not a surprise. <laughs> there you not, go. A, not a surprise. <laughs> I mean, the, there was always, you know, what I say is uh, Catholics are like muskrats. They never venture far from water. Mm-hmm. But you could also say the same thing about Jews. A map of yeah. 
Jewish communities of America is the same, and a map of Catholic cities of America is yeah. a map of great waterways of America because yeah. they were trading and immigrant people, and they mm-hmm. came down the rivers. And so Cincinnati and Louisville and St. Louis will have large Jewish communities, Cleveland, whereas Indianapolis, Columbus will have relatively small yeah. communities or perhaps not at all. Well, but it's funny because, you know, we are – trained, we Jews, are trained to be shocked to learn that there are Southern Jews. I remember at my kids' grade school, which was a Jewish day school, they did an art exhibit, Bagels and Grits, about Southern (laughs) Jews. And we were shocked until, of course, we realized all the pictures were of shop owners. Then we, of course, someone had to sell the stuff. Or like when Matthew was here, um, Matthew Zapperter is a poet. Um, His Russian grandfather was like a haberdasher in Dallas. You know? Yeah. Southern. We did. Not in huge numbers, but we were there. I mean, can, can we just like, since we're talking about, you know, blacks and Jews and racism and the church, and let's talk about being gay in America in the <laughs> 60s and 70s, 50s, whatever. I mean. And we're in a small town in Kentucky. Yeah. How did that shape your stuff? Well, the specific quotation, I was standing at the bar in the family, in the basement of the house, the family house, which had been built out of Detroitus rescued from the from the distillery, including the the cypress that lined the mash tubs because they shifted to stainless steel from cypress. And my father took the cypress and, and uh, made tongue and groove paneling. And the house smelled like the, we lived inside of a mash tub for the first <laughs> 10 to 15 years that we were there. You anyway, were a bourbon barrel family. We were <laughs> in the basement uh, drinking at the, uh, the bar, which had been the white bar in the old – when the old family tavern burned, uh, wow. my uncle got the got the white bar, and we got the the colored bar, quote unquote. Ours was actually the colored bar, which is the more beautiful bar, interesting in my opinion, made out of the cheaper wood oak, mm-hmm. but nonetheless the more interesting, handsome bar. Interesting, really interesting. Anyway, we were standing there. This was about in the eighties, and my sister in law said to me, uh, "You know, how could you leave Kentucky? You know, isn't it like?" Isn't it just paradise here? And I said, well, I'm being polite and saying this. Thing. She said, but I, I would like to visit California someday. Tell, tell me, you know, would you go to L.A. or San Francisco if you're going to choose one? And I, well, L.A. has these advantages. San Francisco has these advantages. She said, well, tell me which one has the fewer fags in it because that's the one I want to go to. And my brother and was standing the right there mm-hmm. and knew perfectly well that I was a gay man and said, of course, nothing. Right. Yeah. And it was a... Very yeah. doesn't surprise me at all. Difficult moment. <laughs> what did you say? I said nothing at all. So you chose you know. to kind of keep it under wraps, you know. And now later, I will say about this sister-in-law that when my partner died, you, you know, she she had she had a big heart and a big mind, and she came around. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, sometimes people really don't know better. That's exactly right. correct. And she was guilty of ignorance, not malice. That's right. And it can turn to malice for sure. I mean, I have to say, uh, um, you know, in my life with my kids, I feel really lucky to be raising them here. Yeah. Um, for those reasons, yeah. for sure. Yeah. For sure. Now, it's a, you know, somebody who is, uh, how do you explain this to people? How do people come by it? But to put that, uh, to put that, uh, if you, I don't like to think of uh, anything in linear terms, but if you think of life as a race or a path, 
racism, homophobia, sexism, these are, these are you know, ankle irons that you're mm-hmm. saddling your children with. And they have to spend a lot of time. They have to stop by the roadside and spend a lot of time taking them off. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrible, terrible uh, burden. It's really a, you know, and ha- I don't know how you can... Uh, I don't know how you can, you know, bring people around on that front. You can teach. It's one of the reasons I teach, you know. We need to talk about writing. Let's okay. talk about writing. So let's get you out of Kentucky because I think it probably had something to do with writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you the particular reason was I got a job as a – I was a press secretary for a congressman on Capitol Hill for a couple of years right after college. Mm-hmm. I worked for the one liberal from Kentucky. Where did you go to college? Stanford. Okay. I got a – Seagram's had a scholarship for a child of a Seagram's employee that paid everything anywhere you got into school and I got it that scholarship. And I Fantastic. To, I had no idea where Stanford was or what it was. Really? But they sent – they had marketing down long before anybody else. And when everybody else was just sending letters, and I, we didn't have a guidance counselor. Nobody went to college from my high school. I was doing all this on my own. But um, they sent a catalog that was filled with pictures of hunky guys in Speedos lounging, lounging by under <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> palm I'm <going> trees <laughs> next to Lake Lagunita. And I thought that's where I wanted to go. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> So anyway, I came out here, but then I got this job. In the, I was a conscientious objector in the Vietnam War. Right uh, at the tail end? Right at the tail end. That's right. And um, I went to Washington to work for the one congressman who had opposed the war in Vietnam, Ron Mazzoli, great man from Louisville. And um, after that, I, it was, I started – I had a boyfriend, the first boyfriend – and it was very apparent that in Washington, this was 1975 to 77, <clears throat> I was also Daniel Boone on the Kentucky float in Jimmy Carter's inaugural parade, <laughs> the peak of my I want career. that picture. <laughs> That's a first for the grotto pod. Uh, I thought that made your parents happy. <laughs> no, not <laughs> Maybe Carter. not Jimmy Carter. Okay, you're right, you're right. Oh, yeah. I was thinking Daniel Boone, but yeah. Anyway, uh, it became apparent that in Washington, the second most closeted city in the world mm-hmm. after um, Los An- after Hollywood, uh, oh, that it was not possible to I, – I mean, I, I felt, and accurately so, that I had to make a decision between being out in which case I couldn't have a job in any conventional writing journalism setting. So I had to go into the arts because I had the illusion that there was no homophobia. Had you come up to San Francisco while you were an undergraduate? Never. I mean, yes, of course, but I didn't even know that San Francisco was a gay city. I didn't know that until after I moved back to the Bay Area. Uh, I did realize that the West Coast was a long ways away from everything that I knew, so I could come out for that reason here. I, I'm frankly sort of surprised that you survived the culture shock. You know, coming from a town of 500 to Stanford, that first year must have been an uphill climb. It was hell, although it was really bad. People made fun of me mercilessly for my accent. and Which was probably and, stronger uh, then. Yes, it was. Uh but I like to remember uh, there were a lot of hard times, but it was very hard. But um, 
<clears throat> the the guys on the ground floor, w- w- the ground, for some reason they concentrated all the guys that went to like Deerfield and Chode and those mm-hmm. kinds of places there. Yike! And uh, <laughs> and they were kind of all you know, not people that I would want to know today, or even then. But <clears throat> they were really into drugs. Even I mean, they were all they they've been doing acid and whatever mm-hmm. you know since they were in high school. So I would tell these stories. I would tell the stories of my growing up. And they would say, you're making all this stuff up. Yeah. Trappist monks dancing on the table, <laughs> father working, makes bourbon. You're, this is, you're making this up. So um, they said, and I said, you know, I told them with moonshine through prohibition, as everybody did. They said, oh, bring, bring some moonshine back from Kentucky. So I went back at Christmas. And this was the sort of challenge that my father loved, making fools of the Yankees. <laughs> and nobody was making moonshine anymore, but they did make – at the distillery, you could get something that we called a uh, white dog or a white dog. It's like 160 proof? That's, That's right. It's terrifying. It's bourbon when it comes out of the condenser but before it's been aged. So it's clear. It's to, It looks mm-hmm. like you know, corn, corn liquor. <laughs> and it's about 130. Throw it in a mason jar and – and, and my father liked to drink it and the, with the black people in town who were his best friends. Let's not say that racism was anything simple. Mm-hmm. They yeah, were yeah. his best friends. Yeah. Um, and so he put some <laughs> white dog in a Clorox bottle because you couldn't take glass on the plane. Sure. And by the time I got to California, it smelled and tasted of Clorox and plastic. And I wasn't going to touch the stuff with a 10-foot pole, but those guys they didn't who would do it together, <laughs> they drank all this stuff. Oh, and my God. <laughs> I think it might have caused liver cancer, which would actually be a just <laughs> punishment. But anyway. That's a really good story, I have so to you, say. you came uh, right. I, I need to say something, but it just makes me so sad thinking of because I have a 20-year-old in college. And, like, it makes me so sad that you were so close to San Francisco and what could have been, like, gay nirvana at a certain age, like and, and like, I would maybe I that's maybe that's a rosy picture, but so close, uh, but to have not have touched it. I, I, I would. I wasn't ready to yeah. touch it. I was yeah. so there were some out people at Stanford, and they ultimately. I mean, this is Stanford. Stanford, yeah. nineteen seventy-four. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. living in the hippie group house. Yeah, yeah, I was brought in because everybody assumed that we. I was straight. I was brought in to a private discussion. There were two men who had decided to move into a room with each other. Now, this is a house that was filled with yeah. people of mixed gender living with each other, and the, there was a discussion going on as to whether we should uh, ask them to leave because they were two men who yeah. had moved in. It doesn't surprise me. Actually. So, you know, there was a lot of that. A lot of that. You know, th- it was an era of great transition. I'm also, I like being alive. I'm mm. alive. Most of the mm-hmm. people that I knew yeah. in 1979, yeah. in yeah. fact, all of the people that I knew, all the men that I knew in 1979 are dead. Which you so had no sad. way of knowing then. That's correct. Right, but the fact that he wasn't living in gay nirvana as a young right, man. Right. I mean, my first boyfriend ever, who was closeted in, also in Montana as a you know, tween, practically, um, couldn't come out and couldn't live as an out. Oh, young man at all um he died of aids in 1993 mm-hmm. like almost i think could have made it if he had just lived a few more years right. but i do feel like that culture killed him too that he sure oh totally he had to be so absolutely hidden well and as a result you're part of a an extremely unique and i think underrepresented voice i've always said that anyone who's my age or older who's gay 
has been to more funerals than I'll ever be in mm-hmm. a lifetime. I mean, it's hard. I've, I've tried to explain this to my kids. Imagine a time where so, like so many people you knew in your life suddenly died. Mm-hmm. Like of generations of people, your age, the age above that. It was shocking. And it's it was shocking. It was terrifying and so tragic and awful. And it's kind of been forgotten. Yeah. I just read By that. By my kids, at least. I generation. just read that essay you had in Harper's about this yeah. very subject. Right. Yeah. Right. And add to that the idea of, am I next? Right. To carry right. that around. Right. Well, you know, we all have the advantage in this part of the world of being good Buddhists, whether we want to be or not. In fact, I would say that everybody in America is a Buddhist through Emerson and Whitman and Thoreau, right. whether, whether we want to be or not. But um, we understand <clears throat> that uh, I quote Einstein a lot. Um, this distinction between past, present, and future is an illusion, however tenacious. And uh, there really isn't any death. Whitman tells us that. And, uh, you know, there's just transition. There's movement from one organization of um, light and stardust, as Joni Mitchell would have it, to a different mode of light and stardust. And uh, all the same, yeah, it's pretty... um, Some people are called to the charnel house, and I was evidently one of them. Uh, And I decided... I didn't join ACT UP. I decided at the time that I was better suited and would do better just taking care of individual people, that mm-hmm. I would leave the street, the street stuff to other people, and I would be of service to people who were dying. Well, and I feel like to, a certain, to a certain degree, the type of writing you do teaches as well. I hope so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, I believe in writing as rhetoric, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, I think the challenge is to... Uh, you know, the challenge is to do the triple backward somersault flip of having uh, uh, of whatever your writing is teaching you to convey that to the reader in a way that the reader feels uh, engaged and, uh, and 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 feels as if they the reader is participating in the process that that you are in as in an ideal classroom environment. You're teaching the the students are teaching you as you're teaching the students. Well, I de- and I definitely think you are writing about subjects that you are delving as deeply into as possible. And on that note, uh, when we're way further along in this than I was hoping to be at this point, but um, talk a little bit about the solitude book. Are you still working on that? Is that your yeah, I was working on it this morning. I I, I promised my editor uh, that uh, I will have it to her by the 1st of November. She wants pages before then. Uh, and, of course, the what we've been just discussing is the, the factors that produce somebody that I would call a solitary are as many and complex as the factors that produce anybody in any life. But certainly in my case, the fact of surviving the AIDS epidemic and uh, and then also, as I say, you know, growing up in this, uh, you know, in, in, in a really extraordinary uh, setting. Everybody's extraordinary. <laughs> setting is extraordinary. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. it was, it was an, a strange and unusual place to come from. And then having to figure out... Um, uh, the miracle of my own survival, and, mm-hmm. uh, and and it has been and was, and uh, um, 
So th all of that has contributed. And then growing up at Trappist Monks, who, of course, provided a model for uh, 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 the, uh, the notion that solitude was something that was praiseworthy or desirable mm -hmm. or, you know, had something to offer. And give the listeners an idea of where that book came from. Well, the, the genesis of it turning into a book. Well, the, the putative book, as we might call it at this point. I mean, it's still a book in process. Yeah, yeah. But the title is from a, um, a, a Frank O'Hara poem called uh, Autobiographia Literaria, or Literary Autobiography. Nice. And let's see if I can say it. It's very short. Um, when I was a child, I played by myself all alone in a corner of the schoolyard. Animals were not f friendly, and birds flew away. Uh, if anyone came looking for me, I hid behind a tree and cried out, I am an orphan. Here I am, and now, here I am, the center of all beauty, writing these poems. Imagine. Hmm. Oh, my God, I love that. You're a big Frank O'Hara fan, oh, yeah. I know. And oh, the title beautiful. of my book is The Center of All Beauty. So good, uh, so good. Yeah, it's a really wonderful poem. And uh, so, you know, that that is, um, I'm, I'm doing, I, I like to mix memoir with research. Mm -hmm. So I'm researching uh, people whom I call solitaries, which, are not, which is not all the same as being hermits. Some of these people, Henry James had the most crowded right. social calendar in London. Nina Simone, you know, had a long marriage, uh, a very unhappy marriage. But Cezanne had an unhappy relationship for his whole life. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston was married three times, the longest of which lasted maybe a month. Um, but, you know, they were all people, their marriages were never, they were always, they weren't really meant to marry. <laughs> right. I think you had said, I forget who it was, but someone, they didn't live in the same place. They had a long-distance oh, long uh, marriage. Uh, well, Cezanne and his wife I was going to say, never, I didn't even know Cezanne was married, actually. When you said yeah. that, I thought, who's his wife? Uh, Hortense, Hortense. Uh, Hortense Fiquet. And mm -hmm. uh, they lived together for 17 years before they married. Mm -hmm. They had oh, a child, yes. Yes, Paul, yes, yes. Uh, whom they married partly to give the child legitimacy. Right. Uh, but they, they, they lived apart far more often than they lived yeah. together. That is uh, familiar now that you say that. I, I think... Um, what strikes me is that you don't write anything lightly. All of these books and essays come on the heels of lots of consternation, lots of deep thought. Is that, is that a conscious decision or is that just the way you're wound? Chekhov says when – Chekhov, who was the son of – grandson of serfs, which is to say effectively slaves in mm -hmm. Russia. Chekhov says, uh, when a boy is torn from the plow and thrown into the lights of the big city, he is bound to think. Uh, Were you torn from the plow? Oh, completely. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that's a lifelong wound, but uh, wounds are the, you know, what's most interesting about us is our wounds. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we each have our own, and they're unique to each of us. So, uh, you, you know, I'm fortunate that I had a 
the possibility of finding my way to singing from my wounds, many, most people do not. And uh, I mean, I can tell any number of stories that had to do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a serious soul. I am what Chekhov, I mean, what uh, Cezanne who thought of himself first as a choleric, which is to say an exuberant person later in life, thought of himself as a melancholic. And I would say I'm a melancholic. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I would also say that there is a lot of humor, especially in my novels. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a lot of humor that is, uh, that is, there's a lot of humor in those books. Well, and to bring it full circle then, um, in these searches for things and place and, and states of being, is your goal to find that peace in your lifetime, or is your goal to continue searching? Well, uh, uh, what person? Oh, I just went to visit, uh, I recommend it to your attention, the Eugene O'Neill House in um, Danville over in the East Bay. Hmm. And, this uh, is the first I've heard of it. Me too. Uh, yes, he no. wrote all of his great, uh, the, the, the big hits were written, the one place he lived longest in his Danville. life. I had no idea. In Danville. a big house, a big beautiful house, oh. 1937 Out there with all those suburban housewives. Well, at the time there were 300 not, people yeah. In, yeah, in, in Danville. Yeah. But uh, it's a really beautiful, I mean, it, and, and they have much of his furniture. It's, uh, it's well worth the visit. Anyway, um, he looked all his life. His his dying words were, "I knew it. I knew it. I was born in a hotel room. I'm going to die in a hotel <laughs> I like room." That. And he did. I hope I don't die in a hotel room. But uh, but uh, but I, I I want to. I would. It, it is one of the misfortunes of my life. I think of it as misfortune that. Um, San Francisco has become what it is, and mm-hmm. I don't like so many writers and artists. I, I don't know if I can return here, even though I have a share in this house, <clears throat> because it's so expensive to live here, and uh, I, I'm wrestling with that decision. I was hoping. So is Larry. I, yeah, <laughs> no, it's, that decision's made. I was hoping when I had looked at your website and the cover page had cacti that you had found that piece in Arizona. Uh, no, it was mostly because the guy who designed the web pages found his piece in Arizona. <laughs> and is, but, the, is the idea of finding a place or is the idea of just belonging? I, I think it's absolutely the idea of belonging that I, you know, I never belonged anywhere. And, uh, but that is a, uh, uh, that is, um, first of all, a product of all that we have discussed about the particular place where I grew up and the nature of, you know, my blessed mother, uh, my blessed mother, uh, <laughs> said to me at one point, I- I'm really happy that you got out of here. Mm. She, 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 was, she, was, she loved San Francisco. She loved coming here. I have a great San Francisco story that I can tell. She was in, she was 99 at the time. I was visiting her oh, wow. in the Sisters of Loretto nursing home. And I said to try to spark some conversation, you've traveled to many places. The kids take her, took her to, you know, what's your favorite place? You've been to Athens, Rome, Paris, London, New York. Um, and then kind of as an afterthought, I said, and you know, you came, I brought you to San Francisco many times, because I didn't think of San Francisco as being in the sort of league of the, right. those other places. And she said, oh, San Francisco. And I said, really? Why, why is that your favorite place? And she said, because everybody there is so accepting. Hmm. 
Isn't that sweet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it us. breaks my yeah. heart. I can't <laughs> listen. I thought she was going to say because you were there. <laughs> now we'll... She had eight uh, other kids. Yeah, well, that's yeah. a long story. But <clears throat> anyway. Anyway, writing, I, you know, I, I uh, as I say, I, I feel uh, I'm really lucky that I'm able to, even as it's... Uh, there are people, I do know people, who say it's fun to write. I always think they're a little kind of lunatic or crazy or I think it's just the hardest thing that I know how to do. It's the hardest thing that I don't know how to do. Uh, True. So you keep, but the good thing about it is you're never going to master it. Right. It's always going to be harder than you. And that, in a way, I like to think sort of keeps Keeps us alive and keeps our heads striving. Well, I, I do see a Wikipedia page that suggests that you do know how to write. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I, I wonder, and this may be a, a statement too far, but is there some sense of belonging? I sometimes feel it in a small way. Like when you read that Frank O'Hara poem, I feel like Frank O'Hara is my brother. I know him. <laughs> I I do feel a sense of belonging with him in a strange way. Maybe you do with Chekhov. And there are writers I feel that way about. Yeah, and perhaps that's the reason that I, you know, read so assiduously and uh, became a writer was because I did feel like we shared the confraternity of art. You know, we Mm -hmm. shared the confraternity of passion and beauty and you know, those sorts of, of uh, concerns. So the place doesn't have to be a place. It can be a state of mind. Uh, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I believe that that has to be true. Otherwise, I'm really a, Up a tree. <laughs> I, I'm sunk. <laughs> no, but, but. We are unfortunately out of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we go, you wanted us to ask a question. Oh, gee, do I have a question for you all? Yes. Uh, well, um... Uh, I find it impossible to imagine. I've known about the grotto for a long time. Mm -hmm. I find it difficult to imagine writing in an environment with other people. It really, to me, is such a solitary journey that it... It's like hiking with other people. Yeah. You can do it, but why would you want to? I don't, I don't write here. I write at uh-huh. home. The, I, uh-huh. That's very common. Yeah. Uh-huh. That people come to the grotto to, to talk to people. Uh, to, well, they kind of like to do their businessy side of their writing yeah. life, and they write other ways. I, I have written a lot here, uh-huh. but I have a door to my office, and I have to have that. I couldn't write in yeah. the open spaces. People do. Uh-huh. I don't do it. I couldn't do it. Even though I'm not a solitary. Uh-huh. You know why uh-huh. I need to come here to work sometimes is. Um, otherwise I get this virtuous kick at home where I think I've done something of value because I have cleaned the dishes, paid the bills, walked the dogs, eaten everything in the refrigerator, whatever. And like, bam, did that. When I come to the grotto, there's only one thing to do. <laughs> if I'm not talking to people and the door is closed, I have to write. And yeah. so it, it makes me do my work. Well, I'll wind up with one last comment, which is just to say that, um, I believe strongly that if I'm really, really good in this life, I'll be reborn as a Jew in the next life. So, <laughs> so you can suffer in the next one. <laughs> but have a great sense of humor and be a really good writer, probably. <laughs> be hairy. Um, do you have a website or Twitter or anything people can, can take a look at? Uh, the website is my name, right? www.fintonjohnson.com. Lucky. And, uh, yeah, and uh, that's the best way. There's contact information and bio and writing samples and all that kind of stuff. 
I, I am uh, somewhat um, technophobic uh, and uh, kind of proudly so. Mm. Uh, and uh, I don't see anything that is happening that is the day that something happens to change my mind. If I moved back to San Francisco permanently, mm-hmm. I would have to get one of those devices that you hold in your hand. Probably, yeah. You can live in Tucson easily without one because you don't need all that information fed into you. Uh, but here, everything from what the traffic is up to to whether the bus quality. is on time to, you know, all mm-hmm. that stuff. Where your favorite food truck is. Right, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, True. Here at the Grotto, you can, or Grotto Pod, you can find us at the Grotto Pod on Twitter, at the Grotto Pod on Instagram, grottopod at gmail.com. Um, am I leaving anything else? Uh, no. Of course, you can download us on iTunes. Please subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a rating. Five stars. Tell us how great we are. DQ, how can people find you? Uh, thank you, Larry. You can find me at bequintrest on Instagram or Twitter or at bridgetquintauthor.com. And I want to thank our producers. Can you do that in a sec? Because first sure. I want to say you can find me. Okay, yeah. Uh, you can find me Twitter and Instagram at that Larry Rosen. My website for my other podcast is, of course, www.isitgoodforthejews.com. <laughs> There's a method to my madness. Okay, now thank Sorry, our... Sorry, that was important. Thank our... Uh, stepped on that line. Thank our producers okay. and take us out. Okay, I want to thank Lee Kravitz, Beth Weingarner, Lorianne Doyle, our partners, the San Francisco Public Library, Babylon Salon, and I just want to say to everybody out there, read, write, and just keep working. 